mercy. I think maybe if you'd asked me years ago um, what Jonah was about, I would say it was about a wayward prophet. Um, and that's not untrue. It is a book about a wayward prophet. But the more I study in this book and, and just really kind of pray through it as well, uh, the, overwhelming, the overwhelming emphasis of the book seems to me to be, um, as I've already mentioned, stated in chapter 4, verse 2, and then again in verse 11 where Jonah prays to the Lord and he makes this confession for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. And then again, uh, God, after, after the incidents wrapping up here, the experiences with Jonah, uh, God says to him, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? So it seems to me that the, over, the overriding theme of the book is the display uh, of, the, of the graciousness and the mercy, the long-suffering of God, the compassionate God. Uh, that's it's kind of hard to swallow when you think of all that Jonah's going to go through. Uh, even we know that uh, that that compassion isn't limitless because uh, God certainly does judge Nineveh later on. And some people say 150 years, some less. Uh, but we know later that God is going to judge Nineveh. Uh, and we don't know for certain about the sailors and different ones like that. And, and it even seems that Jonah comes out on the other side of his experience in the ocean and in the belly of the fish, um, not quite sanctified, uh, not quite there. And so it doesn't seem to me that it's a story so much about Jonah as it is about uh, the extraordinary, extraordinary mercy and compassion of God. So we're looking tonight more specifically at Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, I'll make some references uh, back into chapter 1 and, and maybe even a couple uh, beyond chapter 2, but primarily I'm thinking about the prayer tonight. Uh, we end up chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said... I called out in my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. You had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. And so I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The, the earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay salvation is from the Lord. And verse 10 was really stunning to me this week. Then, then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Uh, I, notice, uh, I notice a pattern uh, in this book and even in the context of this book as well. And that pattern is uh, wickedness or disobedience, uh, confrontation, mercy, repentance. 
Uh, I say that because even while Jonah's prophesying or, or is called to go to Nineveh, Amos and Hosea are speaking to Israel. And the whole history, history of Israel is indicative of that same pattern. Uh, they're in the period of the kings at this point, but they've come through the period of the judges. And particularly in the book of Judges, they would, they would fall into idolatry and all sorts of things. God would raise up uh, a, an adversary for them, put them under oppression. They would cry out to God. He would send a judge. He would deliver them. Then they would live faithfully for a while, fall right back into it, all through the period of the judges and to some degree even in the period of the kings. And so they're in one of those periods now, as I've said, where Israel is prospering outwardly. They've expanded their borders almost to the extent of Solomon's original borders. And so it is a prosperous time economically and even militarily. They are, they are a mighty nation in the world. But within, they are falling away. They are, they are becoming idolatrous. They are becoming corrupt. And so God is sending them. There's wickedness there. God sends the prophets to prophesy. Uh, to them. And then uh, we know that later there is repentance. God brings that judgment and discipline. There is repentance and a turning back to God. But at the same time that's happening, God comes to Jonah and he says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, the city of Nineveh. It is full of wickedness. In fact, it's such that the wickedness come up before me now. And I want you to go prophesy to, wit to, to Nineveh yet 40 days and they'll be destroyed. So you have wickedness, this confrontation, and then uh, the idea, I was thinking about this, the very idea that it was 40 days, I think even in the king's eyes in Nineveh, he realized he must have seen in the fact that there was 40 days that there's an opportunity perhaps here to change. Otherwise, he would have just outright destroyed us. So even though Jonah doesn't say repent or else, he just simply declares the judgment. Uh, the fact that he gives 40 days might have been interpreted by the king as a, at least a possibility for mercy here. So you see that same pattern. Wickedness, confrontation, uh, mercy, if you will, and repentance. You see it in the life of Nineveh. You see it in the life of the sailors. Uh, these were idolaters. They went to sea with the prophet that they didn't know anything about. And turns out that the judgment of God is coming down upon them on behalf of the prophet. But their life is still in peril. And they're all idolaters. They're praying to their gods. And finally, um, they, they come through the issue. And ultimately, Jonah is cast over the side. God calms the sea. So the sailors, pagan as they are, idolaters as they are, are wicked they experience peril, at least of their lives, and as a result of that, they come to at least some knowledge of the true God, and they even offer sacrifices to that God. So the sailors themselves get mercy on behalf of, jo even though the storm came upon them directly as a, as a result of Jonah's activities, they were still under threat there of the loss of their lives, so they even get mercy. And then we see that Jonah gets mercy in this particular passage. Uh, I was really fascinated early in the week just thinking about uh, the parallels here that Jonah did not resist. Uh, somewhere in the voyage he realizes that this is uh, on you because of me uh, and he doesn't resist at all in being thrown overboard and he understands that their life's going to be saved by the sacrifice of his own. So there are a lot of parallels there, not direct parallels, but uh, typologically perhaps there are parallels there even to Christ. So I see that pattern going on and on and on in this passage. And so that's what's really driving this theme of mercy in my own heart. 
And we see in this particular passage the place of the prayer. And I wanted to point that out. But you see that in verse 17 of chapter 1, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the great fish for three days and three nights. Chapter 2 says, just specifically says in verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. So he's prayed for praying from this place. That's, a, that's an extraordinary place to be praying in some ways, but it seems reasonable that that's when you would be praying. But the thing is, that fish, I'll go on to talk about this, but the fish is the mercy. And so he's praying from a place of mercy in a sense. So all the catastrophes has happened. He's sinking down and, and, and he's, he's come to this place where he's almost at the end of his very life. God sends mercy to him in the form of a fish who swallows him and spares him from the great crushing pressure of the depth and the water that would surely suffocate him. And so he's praying from a place of mercy. That's significant to me in the context of this larger book. And so I want you to notice as well the tense of his prayer. And I, I haven't noticed this, but it really caught my attention this week. But in, in the beginning of the verses there, Jonah prays to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, this is his prayer. He said the following. I called. Now that's present tense. The author here, Jonah, I believe, uh, but whoever, the author here is giving a narrative in regards to what Jonah did. And so Jonah prayed from the belly of the fish, and this is what he said. Now notice the past tense of this. I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried, and he answered me. And he, uh, I cried, uh, and he heard my voice. Verse 3, you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and, and the breakers, notice the engulfed plural, and the breakers and billows passed plural over me. So I said in that prayer, in that moment, that I had been expelled from the Lord. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Water encompassed me, that's past tense, to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. He goes on to say, but you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord. That's present tense. Uh, verse 7, while I was fainting away, I remembered, that's past tense, the Lord, and my prayer came to you. And what's striking to me about that, and it goes on a little bit, is that Jonah in the belly of the fish is praying in regards to what he was doing on the way down. These are prayers that were offered up in the water, not in the well, now, or in the fish. Now in the fish, he's remembering and reciting the prayer he was offering as he was descending into the depths. That's why it says he's praying from the belly of the fish, from this place of mercy. And from this place of mercy, he's recalling what he was crying out on the way down to his death. Hear this again. Out of my distress, he says in verse 2. I cried in verse 2. You had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, verse 3. The current engulfed me. 
all your breakers, those waves from the storms, they had completely passed over him. In fact, in those moments, he's, he's remembering that he was saying on the way down, I have been expelled from your sight. And even on the way down, he's thinking about praying. Yet I will pray, I will look to your holy temple. Verse 5, water encompassed me to the point of death and the great deep engulfed me. Words, weeds were wrapped around my head. I, he's remembering his experience in the depths. And from those depths, he was crying out as he was going down. That was really remarkable to me because you would think in that circumstance, all that would be overwhelming you was the panic of, of not being able to catch your breath and sinking under the water. But jo Jonah seems to be recalling a, a, a conscious awareness of his sliding away and slipping away and being put out of the sight of God. And even in the realization of that, he's, he's remembering that he offered up or at least was thinking in regards to offering up his prayer and directing his prayer towards his holy temple, even as he was under the judgment in his own mind of God for his disobedience. That's just amazing to me. That's amazing to me. And the reason I think Jonah and the author here goes to these great links is because I think he's trying to establish for the reader the extraordinary mercy of God being poured out in the life of Jonah. I mean, this is a defiant prophet. He has heard a direct word from God to go on a mission. And he has not just ignored it or delayed it or put it out of his mind. He deliberately sought out on the map the farthest place in the known navigable world to go to escape obeying God. This is a defiant, disobedient prophet who is not worthy of the mercies of God. And here he is experiencing the consequences of his disobedience. The storm has been sent by God. He even notice here has caused this. You have thrown me into the deep. Your breakers and billows have passed over me. He's attributing the very instruments that's taking his life to God's ordained mission or ordained will for him. I am experiencing the elements that you have sent against me in my disobedience. Even so... I pray. Even so, my prayer goes up to you. Even while I'm holding my breath and I'm, my chest is heaving as I know that I'm on the brink of having to take my first breath, which will be filling my lungs with water and I will never again rise to the surface. Even as the kelp is wrapping around my head and causing me to scramble, not even to be able to make it to the surface. Even as I know my life is coming to its end and justly so in my disobedience, I look to your, I, I remember you. I mean, that's mercy. That's mercy. That's not, that's, that's, this is the mercy of God being poured out into the life of Jonah. Even his being cast into the sea in some ways is the mercy of God. Certainly towards the crew of those ship who were all going to be lost as pagans in the sea were it not for Jonah's at least willingness to acknowledge that he was the cause of that and the prophecy that if you throw me overboard, the sea will be calm. And it surely it was. So the sailors received mercy. But now Jonah, the one who's called to go to be the instrument of God's extending mercy to Nineveh is himself the recipient of that same sort of mercy. 
an undeserved mercy. And he's going down. And this is where I want to dwell tonight for a little while, but it's where the title comes from tonight, but the power of mercy. And I was looking through this and what John is saying here, and I was thinking about, look what, look, look what mercy produced. Look what it produced in Jonah's life. First of all, in certain death, it produces hope. And I've already touched on that, but chapter 1, verse 12 and verse 15 both, where he's cast into the sea. He says, throw me in the sea, they throw him in the sea. And then chapter 2, verses 2 through 6, and particularly verse 5, he says, water encompass me to the point of death. Jonah, mercy in the life of Jonah produced hope in the very grips of certain death. I remember there was a rock quarry we used to swim in up off of 115. Uh, I've always heard that they, they estimate to be over 300 feet deep. In fact, I know a diver who went down in there looking for a body and there, there was said to be a crane in there with the boom at, a, at about a 45. And he went down 80 feet and circled the entire quarry and crisscrossed it and netted it. And he never saw the top of the boom. Now that's water. It's crystal clear. So you could have surely seen 20 feet. Well, there was a 40-foot cliff that everybody jumped off of. And we went swimming in the rock quarry. So when I was about 12, 13 years old, I took a big run and leap and off of that cliff I went, 40 feet down to the water. By the way, do not jump that high and leave your legs apart. Uh, it was very painful. But when I hit that water, I went so deep. Nobody told me to arch my body to shallow my dive. When I went, I went so deep that I looked up and I could see the daylight above me because the water was so clear. And I started kicking and paddling for all that I was worth. And it dawned on me, I'm not going to make it. I am not going to make it. And my chest literally began to go grunting for air. And just at the moment when I was about to suck in that lung full of water, my head broke the surface and I, <gasps> I would have drowned. That's where... That's where Jonah is, except Jonah can't see the surface anymore. It's maybe dark out and the kelp's wrapped around his head and he feels the huge pressure of the depths and he, he's in the very grips of death. Where is hope coming from there? Mercy produces that. What, what foundation at this point should, should Jonah have any justification to expect that from that place a prayer might even be heard or even the ideal to pray? He's a prophet under the discipline, heavy disciplining hands of God. He don't know as to whether or not this discipline is going to bring him back to God. He doesn't know. He's in the very grips of death. But mercy, mercy of God produces in that circumstance now, if you've ever been to the depths, you know that to be true. I've been there. I'd been in the depths like he has, but I've been in the spiritual and emotional depths to where I couldn't, I couldn't justify living on the planet another day. But somehow or another, in the midst of that distress and despair and hopelessness, there was an inclination that there might be a God who could manifest his glory and his presence to me in this situation. And God put that prayer by his mercy into my heart. 
And God answered that very prayer by revealing himself through his word and through his spirit. So mercy produces that. In verse 4, and you might even say this is similar, but I was drawing for this. In the darkness, mercy gives light. Notice he says in verse 4, so I'm concluding. I'm on my way down. The breakers are covering me. I've been engulfed by the current. I'm, I'm going down. And I have concluded at this point that I have been expelled from your sight. It is dark down here. Nothing but seawater above me and kelp around my neck and heavy pressure. There is only darkness in the depths. I was watching a documentary recently and there is no plant life in the depths of the sea because there is no photosynthesis. Even the animals are, 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 are bioluminescent. They're creating their own light. There's no light that penetrates that deep into the sea. And so it's dark but from this dark, desperate place where Jonah was certain that his life was coming to its conclusion, he says in verse 4, Nevertheless, I will look toward uh, your holy temple. I will look again toward your holy temple. That's light. So from the depth of this darkness, mercy produces light. There is light. There is hope there. But there is, a, there is the light of the glory of God emanating into my soul even as I am surrounded in darkness. Mercy produces that. If there's not mercy, there's only darkness. There's only darkness. You ever been there? If you've ever been there and you've come out of that, you know that the light that you received there was the mercy of God because there was nothing that merited your, your getting light in that moment. Certainly not your behavior. I don't know about you, but every distress I've ever been in was a result of my defiance of the truth of God's word. My rebellion, my gratification of the flesh always led to a place of darkness. If there was any light at all that shone in that moment, it was the mercy of God. And so I think is what is inspiring, even as he's in the ocean, these thoughts in regards to God, even in his desperate situation, the mercy of God is powerful. And it produces effects in us and those to whom is it extended. In chapter 2, verse 1, it sees mercy, and I drew this but from this single phrase, but it sees mercy where, there, where one would not expect it. He's in the, I can't reiterate this enough, he's in the belly of a fish. He goes on remarkably later to, to give God thanks from that position. Mercy sees, mercy sees mercy in the most unexpected places. None of us would say in the belly of a fish is a place where I would be reflecting and recognizing the mercy of God. In fact, I, I thought as a kid that the fish swallowing was part of the, was part of the judgment. But it's not. It's the, it's the mercy. The judgment was his having been cast into the sea and was dying and going down to the bottom of the sea in death. That was the heavy hand of justice in the life of jo Jonah. But God appoints, assigns a fish. 
I wonder how long he was in the deep, but it seems to me that the fish was on station before Jonah was ever thrown in because maximum you might be able to hold your breath a minute if you're an average person, maybe two if you're very experienced. So the fish was within two minutes from being on scene where Jonah was thrown into the sea. Yes, God appointed the fish. Mercy was appointed before it was ever needed. You see the difference? So Jonah's dying and the mercy of God comes along in the form of a fish. I don't know about you, but I, don't, I wouldn't immediately think of that as mercy. But listen, mercy reveals that as mercy. You may, you may feel like you're somewhere right now in some distress and you're in the belly of the whale and there is darkness all around and you may think it's the heavy hand of discipline upon you, but it may in fact be the mercy of God for you. In fact, it may have been the, the very instrument by which he delivered you from certain death and brought you into this place of humility now wherein he's going to produce in you a realization and an appreciation, by the way, for mercy. That's a hard place to be. I don't know. I don't know that in our fleshliness that we could ever estimate the true value of the mercy of God without circumstances like that or similar to that. I don't know that you know how valuable the mercy of God is until you get a taste or at least a sense of the, of the just condemnation you were under and the complete righteousness of God that you would experience that for eternity, yet he delivers you from that. I don't know that you can get a sense of what mercy is. But Jonah's in a prime place to realize it. He's in the belly of a fish. Uh, notice at this point, there's no indication he's going to be getting out anytime soon. <laughs> I mean, Jonah could have justified and said, well, isn't this great? I was going to die in the ocean. Now I'm going to get swallowed by a fish. And who knows how long I'll live down here. And how, what's the life expectancy of a giant fish? I could be in his belly for the next hundred years and be eating krill as he's swallowing it for my diet. I could, I could just be here forever. But Jonah understood, and he's praying now from that place. Mercy is seen when, where one would not expect. In verse 4 and 7, I love this, but mercy provokes earnest prayer. He says there, I've expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. In verse 7, he says explicitly, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Nothing like mercy to provoke earnest prayer there. Remember, he's from the belly of the fish. It is God's mercy to Jonah. And the, and the experience that he's reciting is not the experience inside the belly. It's the experience outside the belly. It's the experience of being pulled down and swamped and dying and gasping for that life's breath. And the rescue of the whale provides opportunity now for him to rehearse the grace of God and the mercy of God in the outside the belly of the whale. And it provokes earnest prayer. Do you think, do you think Jonah was insincere here? I don't at all. There's nothing, nothing insincere about a near-death experience from which God delivers you, right? 
Your prayers are earnest as they can be, or even prayers that are offered up as you're sinking into those depths. Those are earnest prayers. You say, well, are they theologically correct, Larry? I hope so, but not always. Sometimes they're just guttural, instinctive cries for help. But Jonah's prayer is ordered aright, I think. So now he's in the belly of the well, and it's provoked in him, and the whole experience of the mercy of God has provoked in him earnest prayer. I don't think you can pray earnestly apart from the mercy of God. I think you can make your prayer sound nice. I think you can make it theological. I think you can make it sound. But I think earnest prayer is born from the experience of the mercy of God. For a relationship and communion and a drawing near to God in where His glory provokes in you earnest prayer. It happened even for the sailors. They were idolaters. And when they threw him over the side and they saw that what he said would happen, happen. And he had just told them that I am a Hebrew and I, I fear the God who is ruler over earth and sea. And you throw me in, the sea will be calm. They understood that whoever the God of Job, Jonah is, is able to calm the seas in a moment. And they at least, they at least began to pray earnestly to that God under whose power they had been spared <coughs> or by whose power <coughs> they had been spared. So mercy provokes earnest prayer. In verse 8, kind of going through, the, through this as well, uh, you see it in the life of the sailors as well, but also in verse 8, because I think that's maybe what uh, Jonah is referring to here, but mercy distinguishes between idols and the true God. Notice in verse 8, he just seems to almost inject this in here, but he says in the midst of that, uh, when I was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. So uh, nothing like mercy to distinguish between the false gods or the idols in our lives and the true God. You know what's striking to me? There wasn't a single idol uh, adored or esteemed by the sailors on that ship that could have saved the sailors. Not a one. They'd have went down with their idols. In fact, if the ship had gone down, all the sailors and all hands aboard would have been on the bottom and whatever little native idols they carried with them, which a lot of them did. They carried little miniature idols so they could set up their little devotion times all over the place. So they probably had their idols with them. And the captain even orders them, pray to your gods, boys, or we're going to die out here. And they're all praying and the storm's getting worse and worse. But there's one man on board who knows the true God and fears the true God. And he says, throw me over the side and the true God will bring calm to the sea. They do what he says eventually after some resistance and the sea begins to be calm. You see how mercy distinguishes between idols and the true God? I think sometimes the crises in our lives and the distresses we go to are to distinguish in our own hearts between the idols that we've set up and we've trusted in and built our lives around and the true God. How many of you here tonight really realize that your next breath is a dependent on the mercy of God? You didn't live well enough today to earn it. 
You didn't do the right devotion this morning. You didn't have the right view of a scripture text. You didn't say the right prayer this morning to merit somehow that next breath. It is a mercy from God that I'm standing here and that there are synapses happening in my brain to, to, and manipulating my tongue and causing me to think and be able to speak these things. These are all mercies of God. I don't warrant any of those by my own goodness or righteousness. Do you? I don't think so. I don't think so. See, distress and mercy makes it that distinguishing between the idols in our lives and the true God. Verse 9, I've already touched on this as well, but mercy provokes true thanksgiving. Think about where he's giving thanks for. <laughs> I, I couldn't help but think about this. I shared with some of you, but the, our, the pastor that I talked to in Katali, Kenya, uh, one time I talked to him verbally on the phone and he said we were worshiping at the church under the tree. My first thought was, that's a neat name. He meant we were gathered under a tree in Katali, Kenya. And I could hear chickens in the background. And they were, they were having church, as we say. They were worshiping together in the hot Kenyan sun. And I couldn't help the thinking myself after I talked with them that day, would we, would we feel grateful in that circumstance? I mean, we say things like, and I am, I'm thankful for a cool building tonight. But could you sit in here with no heat and the windows open and maybe a fan somewhere and it was about 90 degrees and about 70% humidity, could you feel joyful and grateful? See, that's the difference. And, and to me, the stunning thing is, Job is, or Jonah is sincere here. He says, they regard vain idols and forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving from the, from the fish's belly. That might be a theme for us to remember this coming Thanksgiving when we're thanking God for the bounty that he provides as we should. But we ought to ask our children or perhaps ask our families as we gather around, what if we didn't have this? What if Thanksgiving dinner today for us was a cracker split four ways or a piece of bread and some water? What if we were gathered in a prison cell somewhere? What if we were cast out into some far-flung forest? Would he be worthy of Thanksgiving today? Not if you don't know his mercy. Not if you don't know his mercy. Jonah knew the mercy of God. He was sinking into the despair. And God sent mercy in the form of a, of a fish. And from the middle of that fish, from the belly of that fish, Jonah is offering authentic gratitude to God for his mercy. So what if, what if, I, don't, what if I don't know authentic gratitude without the whale or the fish? What if, it takes a, what if it takes a crisis in my life to drive me to the dependence upon the mercy of God, to taste of the value and the exalted merit of mercy before I really feel gratitude and before I'm able to express that gratitude in the worst of circumstances? Remember Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail after they had been beaten about midnight, it says, they began to sing praises to God. And God, 
God received that gratitude in those circumstances in such a way that the entire jailhouse began to rattle and to shake, so much so that the doors fell off and they were free to go and refused to leave. And God used the, used the praise that was born from the mercy of God in their own lives and the recognition of the infinite value of mercy. And God used that to transform the lives of an entire family and to deliver those who were under those consequences. Mercy provokes true thanksgiving. Verse 9, it establishes, <coughs> mercy establishes and renews or renews a resolve to faithfulness. Notice in verse 9, he says, I will sacrifice to you. After that, he says, that which I have vowed, I will pay. <coughs> It doesn't say specifically what he vowed here, but you can imagine uh, part of his prayer as he was sinking into the deep. Lord, if you deliver me here, I will follow you. I will do whatever you have called me to do. Lord, I will pay my vows. I thought about the, the Charles Dickens Christmas Carol and the three visits and how earnest he was in fulfilling those things. Mercy produces that. It establishes a new resolve. <clears throat> you know, there's nothing... There's nothing like a crisis to remind you of the weightiness of all that which you have committed to God. Uh, I've shared this before, but in my conversion, in, in my experience of regeneration, uh, in, the, in the moment that I felt the weightiness of my sin and the just recompense of God in an eternal condemnation, in that very moment, it's almost almost like a movie in my mind. In the moment that I felt such almost unbearable, crushing weight of that and the realization that it was just, at the same moment, it was like a light came on. Now I get the cross. Now I understand what that's about. Because what I'm experiencing is right and it's just. And the only deliverance from this is that incident which is righteous and just. Mercy, mercy. And it renews in me. And that, I always say this, but in that moment, if you would have asked me, Larry, what do you treasure in life? In that moment, I would have said exclusively, Him. Nothing else. Not my wife, not my daughter, not my own life. Just give me this mercy. In that moment, and sometimes the distresses in life, even in disobedience, even under the disciplining hand of God, drives us back to the place to where we remember that moment. And we reestablishes by the taste of the infinite mercy of God in our lives. It reestablishes for us that same resolve to want only Christ. And we push those things away. We, we don't want those. I certainly don't want to suffer discipline for disobedience. But God providentially can bring all sorts of things into our life to bring us back to that place to where we want Him and only Him. I'm convinced that in our dying moments for the Christian, as much as our heart may be saddened as we leave our families and people that we love behind, as much as we may have confidence that we will see them again. But I think in that minute, that second between life and death for the Christian, there is a transition and a fuller view of that glory of Christ, which you've only tasted in this life. And in that moment, death is made easy because I want Him. And there's nothing in this world 
that will turn me back from going to my Savior. That's the kind of resolve that mercy produces. You try to drum that up on your own and you might stir yourself emotionally with a movie or a devotional. But when God stirs it up with a genuine display of his mercy in our lives and a genuine illumination of the infinite value of that mercy, it'll reestablish that in our lives. And finally, in verse 9, mercy works to affirm, to affirm that salvation is from the Lord. He says that in the very end of verse 9. I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving that which I vow I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. That, that may not strike you as unusual, but it, it strikes me as, a, as, a, as an exclamation point on the experience. <clears throat> I don't know what Joe, Jonah may have been uh, mingling in with his ideas of salvation all along the way in his life. I don't know what he may have mixed up with that or, or what kind of deal he had in his mind. But at the end of this experience, it seems conclusive. Salvation is in the Lord and the Lord alone. That's my conclusion. That's what the depths, the sinking taught me. That's what the mercy in the midst of the sinking. That's what the well or the fish sent along by God to, to extend mercy to me. That's what this whole experience has established to me is that I am affirming and convinced now that salvation is only in the Lord. And really, if you think about the Christian life, it ought to flow from the joy of that. Obedience should flow out of the extraordinary mercy of, of providing that in our lives. Rather than some rigid, you know, walk the line, walk the, toe the line. Lest you, lest you not be worthy of the mercy you've given. Well, you're not worthy of it. In fact, the fact that you got it not worthy points to you to the worthiness of the one through whom it is provided, who is Christ. Job confirms salvation is from the Lord I'd close with this thought I love verse 10 I was I, I, I was walking around on my deck this morning uh, having one of those charismatic shout and run type things but I when I read that verse it just it just sounded like a hammer hitting a gong because then he says then at this point God commanded the fish and he spit him up. So everything we're listening to has unfolded in the depths of the sea and in the belly of a fish. All this theology has been born. All this recognition of the mercy of God. All this recognition of the sovereignty of God and the realization and the weightiness of all of that has come to bear in the fish and in the sea. And when that was accomplished, then it says, then God said, spit him out. Everything that mercy was provided to, meant to provide for Jonah in this moment has been concluded. Jonah has been moved from this place to this place. Now take him to the shore, let him follow his resolve to fulfill his vow, and let him go to Nineveh. Now, we're not going to get into it tonight, but... You, I want you to understand when we get farther on this book, I'm going, to rem, I'm going to remind you why I spent so much time here. Because Jonah, in this instant, is, is soaking in like a sponge the mercy of God, which is the very thing that he refused to go to Nineveh to tell him about. Or to even, even give him a heads up in regards to the potential for it. So what Jonah withheld from the Ninevites... 
God is pouring out in the life of Jonah. And it's making an effect. It's producing things in Jonah. And now we conclude tonight with the fish takes him back to the shore and spits him out. Uh, it doesn't say exactly what shore. Did he still have to make the trip to Nineveh or did the fish go on a direct route and spit him out right there where his mission would start? I don't know. But his experience inside the belly of the fish had concluded. Now we're going to see whether or not Joseph, Jonah is going to live the life uh, that he experienced by the mercy that he experienced in the belly of the fish. Stand with me tonight. So. Father, we thank you for mercy. And Lord, as difficult as the crises in our lives can be and as distressed as we may be, Father, I thank you that we are in Christ. Your mercy is poured out upon our lives in Christ. And Lord, I pray that like Jonah, we would, through that mercy, demonstrate a transformed life. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to be guarded against the idea that we didn't just begin by mercy only to stand on our own two feet and to walk by merit from that day on. We were brought to life by mercy, and Father, the sustaining of our life is by that mercy and the deliverance, ultimate salvation and glorification will be by that same mercy. And I pray that we dare not diminish the merit of Christ's suffering, that we might not view ourselves as contributing to the merit of the very mercy that we receive from him. Bless those who've come tonight, Father. I pray that you would continue your work in each of our lives at your pace, according to your wisdom, according to your word, and that you might transform us systematically and through the years to the image of Christ, our Lord and Savior. We ask in his name. Amen.